Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rural Spark Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. Today, we're going to take a look at a vital aspect of the new trend in urban to rural migration in Canada that we've been seeing play out during the COVID-19 pandemic. Namely, will these newcomers stay? I was prompted to dig into this side of the equation a little after hearing about two new families who recently moved to our area of rural Nova Scotia, deciding to leave again, which is a real loss to the community. Like other rural areas, we desperately need to increase our population after decades of out-migration. So is there more that our communities can do to boost retention? We're pleased to have University of Guelph professor Wayne Caldwell with us today to discuss the challenge and potential solutions. Dr. Caldwell has lectured across Canada on the future of rural communities and has published extensively in the area of planning, community development, and rural land use. Hello, Wayne, and welcome to the Rural Spark Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, you know, we're really pleased to have you here to talk about, you know, this trend in migration that we're seeing across Canada, some areas more than others, with people moving from rural areas to rural Canada. That's really kind of taken root during the pandemic. But uh, first, Wayne, I, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about your research in the area of planning for healthy rural communities and populations. Sure, sure. We've looked at uh, this notion of healthy rural communities for a period of time, and it's often focused on the built environment, particularly in an urban context. And then the question is, well, what does that mean for rural communities and for rural Canada? Because we look in an urban context, we can think of healthy rural communities in terms of, I'm sorry, healthy urban communities in terms of public transit. We can think of it in terms of walkability and things of those nature. But the reality is for many rural communities, you need to look at it from a different perspective. So what we started with is looking at the determinants of health, uh, working with uh, planning departments, working with local health units here in Ontario. And we brought focus to some of those key determinants of health, and they get us thinking about the connections between the social, between the environment, and between the economic. And uh, that led us to a number of uh, of potential actions, uh, potential uh, strategies that local municipalities and communities might consider and pursue. And of course, one of those relates to immigration and population growth, because we do have a reality across rural Canada that we have some communities that are growing, Uh, but we have other communities that are losing population and trying to figure out what does the future look like and how do we get there. Terrific. I'm I'm actually eager to dig a little deeper into that research and see where there's some future podcast guests and topics that we might want to explore. So thank you for doing that. You know, mostly, Wayne, I think we've had anecdotal evidence, right? There's been a lot of news coverage over interviewing people who've actually picked up and moved, some of them sight unseen, uh, especially into Atlantic Canada. It's mainly been a coastal thing, I think. We see a lot of move to Atlantic Canada, some to BC as well, but we haven't seen a lot of figures. There was recently Royal Bank did come out with a a little bit of report that gave us some numbers and and they are saying that we're we're seeing the largest net migration to Atlantic Canada since 1961. Actually, in the first two quarters of this year, 2021, we're seeing more a higher net migration than in both 2019 and 2020 combined. So the numbers, as we start to see them, are are, are kind of significant and it can make a difference when it talks about you know, keeping your school open and, and, and keeping hospitals going and that sort of thing. You know, you have a lot of expertise in this area. So what's your impression from where you sit on what's happening? Yeah, I, I would agree with your analysis as well. I think some of it is still quite anecdotal. We have indications and we'll be interested to see when the results of the census start to roll out and, and what that says to us. Um, I mean, I, again, I can think of many anecdotal situations and some of the reports that you referred to as well, indicating that there is migration happening. I'm aware, for example, of of a, of a local uh, town here in Ontario, uh, where they had a subdivision that was coming online, 
and um, they stopped halfway through the first week of sales and realized they weren't charging near as much mm -hmm. and added another 100000 to the price and opened it up again and sold it out almost immediately. And those kinds of realities are out there. People, uh, again, we refer to coastal situations. Well, in Ontario, of course, there are many coastal situations along the Great Lakes as well. And some of those communities, I think, are experiencing significant growth and interest. People who might have uh, turned their cottage into their full-time residence while they leave their home in Toronto or the GTA area, for example. And I suspect those kinds of anecdotal situations exist across the country. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, something that made me want to talk to you today about the idea of retention, because it's one thing to say, you know, yay, people are coming, but how do we keep them here? You know, we're based in rural Nova Scotia in the Guysboro area. You know, we've had some families uh, come in, which is great. We've seen a little bit of a boost in uh, school populations, which is wonderful. You know, recently I've heard stories about a couple of families who've actually moved away again. And sometimes there's been challenges around, you know, not being able to find the affordable rentals. You mentioned the housing issue, of course, and that's in rural Canada as well. So if we don't, you know, address some of those problems and, you know, one member of a family might be coming down for a job, but can we get employment for the partner? And, you know, in some communities, they might be left kind of on their own to navigate those challenges. And in some areas, maybe there's more support. You know, what's 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 your view on how communities can actually address this this retention problem a little more? Yeah, I think I think it starts uh, even more fundamental than that, if I might put it that way. It starts with this recognition of how important it is for rural communities to be thinking about attracting and retaining people, because I think, you know, for some people, they might not see the writing on the wall, if I could put it that way. But if we look at demographics and we look at the aging population and we look at the fact that the vast, vast, vast majority of people that move to this country don't come to rural communities, they go initially to the larger cities, whether it be Vancouver or Edmonton or Calgary or the GTA and so on. And the question is, what does this mean for rural communities in the absence of this uh, possibility of aging population and lack of, of relatively low birth rates and lack of immigration coming? It's to say that these current issues that we're seeing in terms of you know, jobs that aren't being filled, as an example, they don't happen to fill themselves, right? You need to attract and retain people. And that's where I think this, this notion of retention that you've mentioned is so fundamentally important. And in a perverse kind of way, uh, the opportunity that COVID has brought to us because it started to bring a light to the possibility of people moving to rural communities and staying there. So I think this notion of retention is really important. And it uh, it's incumbent, upon, I think, upon all of us that live in rural communities and work in rural communities and uh, our elected officials as well to try to find out what do we do best to try to attract and retain some of these folks. And I suppose it's very similar, is it, Wayne, to what we do when we're trying to get uh, some of those uh, you know newcomers to Canada to actually consider maybe it's a second stop, but to come to rural communities, then you can you know put a lot of effort into attracting them there. And how do you keep them there? I, I'm assuming the mechanisms are kind of the same. Have you come across some good models of actually looking at retention? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a number of things that can be done. We put together a book actually entitled, uh, I've just got it here beside me, Attracting and Retaining Newcomers, and it's published through a Municipal World, uh, again, a publisher here in Ontario. And it's uh, it identifies some of the best practices, and it, granted it's dated before COVID, but it does identify some of the key things that municipalities and communities can be doing all the way from uh, you know, being a welcoming community to trying to make people feel when they do arrive in a community that they're appreciated and respected. And uh, how do you actually go about doing that, I think, is a key issue and a key opportunity for municipalities and communities to address. 
Yeah, in our area of Nova Scotia, like many other areas, it's been recruiting healthcare professionals has been the big piece. And something that the Canso area has done is actually established, they knew early on that they needed to establish a welcoming committee, right? That would actually make contact with that family, um, make sure you have different people, people from different generations, because they might have teenagers in there and you're helping them make connections. A gift basket, which included all kinds of goodies, which really kind of blew people away when they, you know, a new nurse came to the community or whatever. And, um, but again, getting to know the family, I think, and, and getting to know what their particular needs are, because it's a very individual thing in terms of helping someone navigate, you know, your community. In your view, it is kind of, you know, a, a boon, of course, to have this happen to us. It's one of the silver linings of the pandemic, I think, to have newcomers coming in. In your view, because you see what's been at risk, say, pre-pandemic, when we look at what's at risk in rural Canada right now, and some of our communities actually dying, you know, what's at stake if we can't get this retention piece right in some of the communities that are actually fortunate enough to benefit from it? Well, it's a, I mean, one can paint it in very stark words if one chooses to. One can try to be optimistic as I do, but the reality is you just look at the demographics and we have communities across the country, you know, from one uh, census period to another losing 10, 15% of their population as an example. And that's simply not sustainable. I mean, the outcome of that is obvious, which is to say, you don't have people filling positions. You don't have the appropriate health care that you require. Your services start to flounder. Uh, people start moving away from the community. And it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy or self-fulfilling cycle of loss and no growth and then more loss because of that. So for those communities that aren't able to come to grips with it, I think the outcome is uh, is quite unfortunate. It's to say that those communities will will just continue to diminish and become less and less relevant. And people will increasingly not want to be there because they don't provide the services that are required. And in some ways that then speaks to the retention. The opposite of that is what you need to do is find ways to engage and, and, and embrace those uh, uh, those communities uh, and, and the people that might be moving there. And I have a PhD student, just as an example, doing research, which again is pre-COVID and now after COVID, looking at the movement of Syrian refugees uh, to rural communities, right? And, and the needs that they have uh, and the, the services that they might require as well. And there's some fantastically successful stories of, of people moving initially to the GTA, struggling with, for example, housing prices. And even though housing prices have gone up in rural communities, they're still uh, relatively inexpensive compared to the GTA, as an example, and other large cities. And there's some good success stories there in terms of people moving and staying and, and, and adopting a new home. Yes, exactly. So it seems that if you are in a community that's fortunate enough to have that kind of migration or urban to rural migration in Canada, you really need to make retention. It has to be a top priority for the community. It's, we, may, we may be benefiting from some things that are happening during the pandemic that this migration is happening kind of organically, but retention is not going to happen organically, mm-hmm. right? Retention is something that you can have some control over. I completely agree. Yeah, it, it's, it's their decisions that can be made all the way from you know, we have festivals that communities put on around uh, different types of food, for example, that uh, that are familiar to the people that might be moving to those communities and celebrating that, as opposed to uh, not celebrating celebrating it and making people feel welcome in that process. So I think, you know, it's 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 taking on a number of these items. We have examples of communities, for example, that have different languages on their letterhead, right? Just as a way of making people in those communities feel, oh, okay, I belong here. And I think that's a really key and it's symbolic in some ways, but it uh, symbolism is really important. Exactly. And, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing happen concurrently to this migration 
is the housing crisis in Canada and, and rural Canada is not, we used to be fairly immune to that, right? It used to be something we talked about in the GTA in the Vancouver area, um, a little bit in Calgary from time to time, but you know, where I come from in rural Nova Scotia, there's been, you know, decades of, you know, just really uh, low price housing that you could buy and buying was cheaper than renting, even if you were only staying, you know, uh, shorter term in a community. But that's all changed now. And it's changed so fast. It's kind of a shock to the community. So uh, it's a bit of a tangent for us right now. But I'm, I'm wondering what you've been seeing about the, you know, how rural Canada has been impacted by the housing crisis. Rentals were always a challenge because, of course, in rural communities, we tend not to have as many of a, much of a rental business going on. But now it's a real, especially if newcomers come in and kind of want to test out your community. It's a, it's a real challenge. W- what's your view on what's happening in rural Canada right now with the housing? Yeah, it's a it's a uh, great question. And when I said a moment ago that it's relatively inexpensive compared to the large urban centers, that is true. But it's relatively much, much more expensive for people that are living in those local communities. And again, it speaks to people with lower incomes, perhaps. Uh, historically, they might have been able to afford a home. And the question now is, what does that mean when housing prices might have doubled or, or more over the last uh, pe- relatively short period of time, two to three years? And, uh, you know, examples that I'm familiar with locally of, you know, housing, you know, literally having doubled. So the home that might have been, you know, $200,000 three or four years ago, now at four hundred dollars or $450,000 or $500,000, well, you wonder how people are able to afford that and what that means for family life in terms of partners having, both partners, for example, having to work with, the, with that type of family. Um, or in other situations, looking for rental accommodations that simply might not be there. And uh, we have examples uh, that I'm aware of, of local municipalities trying to kickstart that housing market, as an example, um, a local municipality, in fact, the municipality I live within, a rural municipality bought a chunk of land and is trying to get a developer to do something with it. But you're still faced with the realities of construction costs and approvals and things of that nature, which add challenges to it. You know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. We also have situations, uh, again, I can, can give the example here in Ontario, where uh, municipalities through provincial encouragement are allowing second units in many instances, which is to say you don't have the second parcel that has to be created. You can simply build a, uh, a second home on the, on an existing parcel, share services, and that can be quite helpful in terms of reducing costs, but it needs from a planning perspective, then there are some real considerations that have to be brought to the table and to ensure that it's done properly and, and uh, you help ensure people's equity is properly looked after into the long term. I just want to take a moment here to thank our sponsor, ExploreNet. Rural broadband is getting a lot of attention these days, and ExploreNet has been a champion for rural Canadians for over 15 years. With their nationwide network, no matter where you choose to live, ExploreNet can keep you connected to what matters. If you want to find out more about what ExploreNet services are available in your area, check out their website at explorenet.com. That's X-P-L-O-R-N-E-T dot com. Mm-hmm. So what municipalities can do is really around land use planning issues, right? Bylaws, that kind of thing. As you mentioned, your municipality, you know, buying a piece of land, but municipalities can't actually develop the housing themselves, right? They need to partner with developers or organizations. and That's exactly right. You need to look for the, the appropriate types of partnerships. I mean, we have uh, social housing that, that's provided, and yet uh, you need to find the right language that works in, in your community too, because... Uh, you know, the, the, even the term social housing for some people can be a bit off-putting and it's to, you know, what, what is the right terminology? I mean, affordable maybe is a better terminology. I'm not sure, but it's to make sure that what you do works well in your community. I mean, I can think, uh, you know, even, even condominium development and, and I live in a rural county in Ontario 
And until quite recently, people had never heard of condominiums, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those were a thing that they did in the big cities. Um, but the reality is it's relatively affordable and is, is equity protected. Uh, there's lots of advantages in doing it that way. But again, it's, it's to the educational system, I suppose, of helping people to understand that there are different forms and types of housing that can be high quality and uh, provide great quality of life for people that live in those uh, facilities. Right. And maybe we have to have a better uh, sharing. I know, um, you know, the, the small town of Anaganish in Nova Scotia has recently had some really successful development projects in affordable housing. And they're, you know, getting inquiries from other areas saying, how did you do this? How did it happen? And I think that kind of sharing, right, where we do see some innovative approaches, partnerships that work with municipalities and community organizations. And how did you map out that whole program and, and get, get launched? Um, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel, I, I, I guess, for organizations, for communities that haven't really gotten into that a lot yet. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and part of that is even looking at the type and form of housing that we build. I mean, you know, I think there's in some ways uh, society has gone a little off track of assuming that bigger is better. That if the bigger the home, the better the accommodations, the better the facilities. And yet uh, it doesn't have to be that way. You can have wonderful housing in, at, at a relatively smaller footprint and smaller area. And of course, smaller housing uh, costs less than larger housing, right? And if you can uh, find the right size or the sweet spot in that area that uh, some people will want to 2,000 square feet, but not everyone does, right? A thousand square foot can uh, home can provide uh, fine accommodations for people. Um, depending on family size uh-huh. and so on, but it's to it's to just to maybe question some of those things that we've done historically and uh, find out if there are alternatives to them, uh, whether it be the type of housing, the size of housing, the location of the housing, and so on. Mm-hmm. And those smaller sizes, especially with innovative design, can make a whole lot of sense. And there's been some cases where they're in high demand. And of course, when we talk about also reducing our carbon footprint at the same time, it just makes Absolutely. a whole lot of sense. Absolutely. And people will look at the footprint of land that housing sits on as well, right? And assume, well, I have to have a large space. And yet, if we think of the most attractive communities that we can think of, it's not always going to be a large footprint housing in terms of the area that it sits on. And, and whereas, you know, rural communities, small villages and towns that I'm familiar with historically might've aspired to, you know, a third or half an acre for the homes. Uh, they truly don't need that kind of, uh, of area and more denser housing is more affordable and uh, in many ways can be better quality in terms of the community and uh, the opportunities that are there. I mean, I often like to give this little story and it's not a rural story, but it's more of an urban story. I remember years and years ago being at a, a conference in Kansas City and the mayor of Kansas City was speaking and he was almost boasting about this, but he was comparing Kansas City to San Francisco. The two communities from a population perspective were essentially the same, right? They had the same size population, but the footprint of Kansas City was 43 times larger than the footprint of San Francisco. And if I was to ask 100 people who would rather go to San Francisco or who would rather go to Kansas City, I think almost everyone would choose San Francisco. And it just goes to show that, you know, sprawl and big uh, doesn't necessarily lead to something which is a better outcome. Yeah. And if that trend kind of changes, that's better for a whole lot of reasons. Um, You know, I know researchers like yourself, Wayne, don't get into crystal ball stuff. But (laughs) I have to ask you, assuming that we have an end to this pandemic in the not too distant future, we all hope, do you think this kind of trend could continue in Canada where we're seeing some more migration, uh, you know, the opposite of what we've seen in past decades? And what are some of the factors that you think will have the most impact on that? Yeah, well, let me just say at the outset, I think, look, trying to create a crystal ball is a useful thing for academics to do. We like to, to try to understand the trends, but sometimes it's taking that informed judgment that you have from looking at these issues over a long term of, of time and, and trying to think about what the future might be. And I, I think what 
what COVID has done is it's brought uh, brought an exclamation mark to some of the trends that were starting to happen. And if we look to the future in terms of other trends that are going on, such as climate change, um, and what does that mean for rural communities? Because in some ways, you know, I think that's the that's maybe the elephant in the room that we're not really talking enough about. And what does that mean in terms of is it more desirable in a climate change scenario to be in a large urban center? Is it more desirable to be in a rural community where you have a little bit more control, for example, over you know, the ability to produce some of your own food, if that's your interest, um, a, a, an ability to have a little bit more space around you? And I think that uh, some of these trends uh, brought about by COVID, some of the trends brought about by the changing economics, because we had such a, in Ontario as an example, such a diversity in the housing costs in the GTA relative to most rural communities that it was probably predictable that people would start to say, you know, I was looking at a house uh, just out of curiosity came up uh, through the newspaper in Toronto. And I think it was like a 3000 square foot townhouse, three and a half million dollars. And you just think like, how could anyone afford that? And, uh, and if I'm living in the GTA and I see that, and I think I can get a house in uh, in a rural community, whether it be in Ontario or Nova Scotia, for example, and it's a fraction of that price well, it's going to make me think uh, pretty long and hard about that opportunity. So I think those kinds of trends were happening and they're continuing to happen. And I think COVID has reminded people of the opportunities to look elsewhere and to pursue them. So I, I do think some of this will continue. The ability to work remotely from home, I think business has changed in that regard and there's a greater appreciation for it. Some things will gravitate back to the way they were, uh, but other things will will change, I think. And uh, you know, I'm thinking of people that I know, uh, one individual works in Saskatoon and lives in uh, British Columbia, right? Because he's able to do everything remotely. And those kinds of opportunities exist. And the challenge then is for folks to feel comfortable in the communities that they locate within and that this becomes a long-term feature. And it's important for rural communities that it not just be retirees, because mm-hmm. that puts an increasing uh, pressure on services and, and certain kinds of services that require diversity of population ages in order to uh, fulfill the the needs of everyone within that community. Mm -hmm. And the trend right now, remote work, of course, is a huge part of it. But now we're seeing organizations that maybe weren't making decisions, long-term decisions on that model, are starting to, as we kind of hope that we're getting near the end of the pandemic. Some of them are saying we can have a hybrid model or or employees can actually have a choice if they want a hybrid model and continue. So a lot of employees are actually being given the option, especially if it's working, right, for you and your employer and your supervisor, um, to continue working from home. So that could influence, of course, that long-term opportunity. Absolutely. I think, you know, there will be decisions, as you indicated, made by businesses across the country in terms of what this has meant for them. But I suspect there will be many examples of folks looking at and say, wow, our our profits went up Mm -hmm. um, and our costs went down. And it's a function of not having large spaces under lease and so on. So, you know, I'm I'm not in a position to make those kinds of decisions, but I'd be curious to see uh, how much of that sustains itself. And I can see people increasingly sharing, you know, when I think of myself over my career, I've always had a dedicated office, right? And, and, and that dedicated office, for example, at the University of Guelph has sat vacant virtually continuously for the last almost two years now. And, and I could see people saying, well, boy, that, that's strange. Um, and at the same time, I've continued to deliver courses, do my research and so on. And I can see people saying, Huh. All we really need is is a couple of shared spaces for people, and they'll come in and out and be less present. Now we have to concern ourselves with the quality of what we're delivering, and all businesses will be looking to that too, and social uh, uh, others, uh, uh, institutions in society. Uh, we need to make sure that that the quality of what's being done is still good. 
Um, but I think in many instances, it's obvious that it has been. Well, thanks very much, Wayne, for um, sharing those thoughts with us today. You've given us some more ideas about research that we should dig into. And we want to follow up, of course, as we move along through hopefully the end of the pandemic and see how some of our rural communities are doing and, and talk about this again. So uh, we'll look forward to connecting you with, you with you again on that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada. <laughs>